Welcome, brothers and sisters. Tonight we're going to be taking a look at Ephesians chapter 5, and specifically we're going to be reading verses 22 through 33, not 22 and 23. Um, I will admit to you, straight off the bat, this is not going to be a marvel of exposition. Not that you should expect that um, every evening, obviously, but um, this is going to be more a, a general overview of the importance of the institution that Paul is going to be talking about, which is marriage. I want to talk about this, uh, particularly because I've got uh, several things on my heart regarding uh, that particular institution, uh, especially after some of the conversations that I had this week, uh, as will become clear. So um, I'm actually going to preach twice on this particular section. The first will be a general overview of the importance of marriage uh, and why it still needs to be important to us. Um, both uh, in our society and doctrinally to understand it aright. And then next week uh, I'll be trying to, uh, to actually do the, uh, the closer exposition of the uh, particular verses. But before we go to the Word of God, let's go to the God of the Word and let's ask him for help. Gracious God, I pray now, Lord, that you would be with me, you would be the light of my mind, and that you would help me to open up and exposit your Word faithfully to declare what a wonderful thing you have done in giving us this creation ordinance of marriage. Help us to understand it so that we might apply it in our lives. I know that uh, not everybody here is married. And I know, Lord, that there will be uh, some who uh, will not see initially the importance of marriage. But I pray, O oh Lord, that you would help them to understand how it works into the way that you have gifted and blessed mankind. I do also pray for those who are too young to get married or have not yet found the right person to marry. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you would help them to be thinking about that person. And uh, I pray, Lord, that you would bring uh, the right person into their lives at the appointed time. Lord, you are the one who founded marriage, and we know that you control all things, so we know you can do that. Help us then all to think upon this very important subject, be we young or be we old. And I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 22 through 33. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. This week, uh, Joy and I were particularly blessed to be able to go to lunch uh, with uh, the only other local ARP pastor, that would be Korean Bethel Church, uh, David Park, 
And uh, his wife, uh, the English translation of his wife's name is Rachel. Do you remember the? Jeonju. Uh, anyway, and they were. It was. We had a delightful uh, meal with them. It was my first uh, opportunity to meet his wife, and um, he wanted to talk about uh, ways in which we might work together as congregations. And we're still going to explore that and do as much as we possibly can with our brother uh, and our brothers and sisters in that particular ARP congregation. Uh, what he discussed, though, was he brought to light a problem that they are having which is that the church that he pastors, which is a Korean-language church, is aging out. In other words, they're getting older and older uh, as time goes on. Uh, it used to be, he said, we had 10 kids in the youth group. Now we have two. Uh, it used to be the case that they would get a number of uh, young Korean men coming in uh, who were going into the military and so on. Now there are fewer and fewer. And... Uh, I asked him, is this related to what's going on in Korea in terms of, of birth rates? And he said, yeah, it's the same in the Korean community, uh, first and second generation here in the United States. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, in terms of birth rates, uh, replacement for uh, birth rates is 2.1. Every married couple has to have 2.1 children in order to replace them. That's because of uh, there's a certain amount of infant mortality. Um, and there are some places where they are still way ahead of replacement within the, uh, the world. Uh, I, I looked it up. The, uh, the leading nation is Niger, which is 6.6. Um, I checked out Uganda, uh, simply because of our own affinity with that, and they're at 4.5. The American fertility rate, however, as of 2023, is 1.7. So we are decidedly below replacement. However... The South Korean rate is the lowest in the world at 0.84. In other words, uh, if they continue on in that current trend, they will actually run out of South Koreans eventually. There will be no longer any uh, more. And one of the reasons for that, one of the most obvious reasons, is it's not just having children that has stopped. It's getting married that has stopped. This is a problem in the Western world, generally speaking, uh, but throughout the world, many of the nations of the world have eschewed marriage, particularly in the industrialized world. Uh, the U.S. marriage rate at the end of the Second World War in 1946 with the famous uh, or fabulous baby boom uh, that occurred was 16.4 marriages uh, or 16.4 marriages for every thousand persons within the United States. Today, um, as of 2021, that has dropped to 6.0 which is uh, directly contributing to the low birth rate. And then in South Korea, it's at 3.7, uh, which is catastrophically low. The Guardian, uh, a British newspaper I read from time to time, actually did a, uh, uh, an article on this in 2022. It's fairly, fairly comprehensive because everybody has realized uh, that South Korea's uh, birth rate has dropped um, precipitously and their marriage rate has dropped with it. Uh, and they've been seeking uh, to figure out why that's going on. In fact, uh, one demo uh, demographer has produced a, a movie about the worldwide population uh, bomb that's uh, about to be dropped called Child Gap. What he did was he uh, actually plotted out how the population goes up to 11 million and then gradually ages and ages and then is going to go into a, uh, a critical slump. Um, now, all of the industrialized nations of the West and throughout most of the world, we depend upon the population 
to uh, be replaced. Um, we depend upon them because the older members, the idea is, will, will be supported by the taxes paid in by younger workers, but those younger workers aren't coming into the workforce. Uh, I gave you an example a while back that uh, in Japan, for instance, they sell more adult diapers than they do baby diapers at this point in time. So we're getting into a catastrophic lack of children problem, which is, of course, related to the marriage problem. Well, anyway, back to the Guardian article. They wrote, opting to engage in activities alone is a growing trend in South Korea. It even has its own word, honjuk. I'm probably destroying the, I, I apologize, Sujin. Uh, a combination of the Korean words for by myself and tribe. People who follow Honjuk lifestyle do so willingly and confidently, not caring about the judgment of others. Min is among an, increasingly, uh, an increasing number of young people in the country embracing single life. Some have chosen to stay unattached, while others are delaying marriage and children. Some women are taking single living further and ruling out matrimony altogether, a choice known as Bihon. Now, or Bihon, I'm not sure what, it, what that is. I'll receive correction happily later on uh, about all of these words, but the trend uh, that we see in South Korea that is, that is really exploding, and people try to make, uh, give reasons for it. They uh, talk about the tremendous cost of living, they talk about the tremendous cost of raising children, the tremendous cost of education, and so on. But that has always been the case. It's always been the case that we spend everything, don't we, on the next generation, or should be willing to do so. How much should we be willing to give for our next generation? The answer is everything, because they are the hope. They are the future, for instance, of our church. Uh, they are the future of the kingdom, certainly, the rising generation. So therefore, we should be willing to pour everything that we have into them. What is happening is we are building a society that views the exaltation of self, narcissism and alone and being alone and making one's own decisions and so on as more important than forming families and structures. Now, this is not only a problem from a theological standpoint, it's a problem also from simply a, a health standpoint. I was amazed to read this. This was actually on the CDC website. Uh, I don't put great confidence in the CDC often these days, but um, they, they, I think they're right on this. Uh, the CDC wrote, studies have shown that adults in the United States are increasingly postponing marriage and that a record number of current youth and young adults are projected to forego marriage altogether. Marriage has been shown to be correlated with positive health outcomes and longevity, and a recent report showed that age-adjusted death rates for both males and females are lowest for those who were married at the time of death. You live longer. And also, one of the things that uh, um, the modern world I know would be shocked and aghast at is that married, uh, married couples are actually happier than non-married couples. And one that should be obvious, and I hate to say this in the midst of our church assembly, married couples have more sex than non-married couples as well and report that they are happier about it. It shouldn't surprise us, though, should it, brothers and sisters, that marriage is good for us because it was one of the good gifts that God gave to us before even the fall. But it isn't just the fact that it's good for us, good for our health, good for our well-being, good for our nation, good for our economy, and so on, that we should value marriage, right? There are much better reasons for valuing marriage. Marriage is a great gift, 
and it was designed by God from the very beginning. Marriage is not something like divorce that came in because of the fall. Rather, marriage is something that was intended from the beginning. It is actually the building block for civilizations. It is certainly the way that families are supposed to start. You remember that as God was creating the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1 and 2, he looked at what he had made, and he declared it all good. But the first time God looked at what he had made and said, not good, that was in Genesis 2.18 when he declared that it is not good that a man should be alone. One of the things that we are shocked at is that people who are alone become lonely and unhappy. As we are eschewing marriage and family, one of the things that's also happening is we're seeing as people uh, get older and older, we're seeing suicide rates going up, we're seeing depression exploding because people are alone and lonely and it's not good, it has never been good. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. First, what did he do? He brings all the animals before Adam, but none of them could be that helper that were comparable to him. And it's notable that at that point, God didn't make another man from the dust of the ground. But rather, what did he do? Well, because no man could be that helper comparable to him, God instead did something entirely different. We read in Genesis 2.21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Now, God had a special purpose in making woman. He made her very differently from Adam. But her differences made her the perfect complement to Adam. It made it so that they worked together very, very well. It is not good for the man to be alone by ourselves. There is something missing. One of the things that I, I pointed out, or I point out in marriage counseling, is that marriage is intended to change men. It changes women as well, and not just it makes them frustrated about toilet seats and towels being left on floors and things like that, but it changes men. Marriage has a civilizing effect on men. It really does. We learn how to be properly behaved human beings in the midst of marriage. I know our parents try, and they'll knock some of the rough edges off, God willing, but it really is our wives who through that selfless long process of recrafting and polishing and so on make us into people who can be trusted to eat properly in front of other human beings. They really do have a great civilizing effect on us. There is so much within man that is missing without women. And there is so much in women that is missing without man. Together, they are completed. And it is together that they reflect the imago dei, the image of God within his creation. It is a beautiful thing. It is something that is beyond special. It is a miracle that God works in bringing them together. Now, God could have created Eve any way he wanted to. He could have snapped. Well, he doesn't have fingers, but he could have said, let there be Eve. And boom, there would have been Eve. But there were theological reasons for doing it just this way. Matthew Henry uh, famously pointed out one of them, and he's been used ever since. I think he was the origin of this. He said that the man was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, 
not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on upon him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved, which I think is the best. Uh, if that wasn't God's express intention, I, it sounds good enough to me, you know. So, in any event, another reason that Adam grasped was that they might now, the, the, he, uh, he understood inherently how special this new relationship that he had entered into was. That's why he says in Genesis 2.23, he doesn't just go, well, that's nice, thanks, God. He says, rather, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus, of course, in answering the Pharisees' question about divorce and, and marriage in heaven and so on, he, he quotes that. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God made them of one flesh to teach us that marriage is supposed to be a one-flesh relationship, a, a relationship that lasts until death, a relationship in which two organisms really become one organism, and that to put marriage asunder should be like the rending of flesh, the removal of a body. It should be uh, something uh, catastrophic, because it is the second closest relationship that a person can enter into. Now, notice I said there that marriage is the second closest relationship man can enter into. There is, of course, a closer relationship, and marriage was intended by God also theologically to point us toward that relationship, to help us to have insight that we could only have through the analogy of the relationship of marriage. Paul wrote about it here in Ephesians 5. In marriage, the husband, we read, is to represent Jesus Christ. And the wife, created from his rib, represents Christ's body, the church. And that relationship between Christ and the members of his body is the closest possible relationship that anyone can enter into. Because while earthly marriage is until death do us part, the union between Christ and believers goes on forever. Once entered into, it is a union that is indissoluble. Now, we read here, and we'll talk about the, the other parts, and we'll deal with, uh, with 22 and 23 and the, the duties of the wife that go through 24. But the emphasis you will notice in this paragraph is on the husband's duties, not on the wife's duties. And the husband is told, love your wife. Husbands, love your wives. Love here in Christian marriage is, is defined by the sacrifice of Christ for his church. So when we talk about the way that we are supposed to love our wives, husbands, future husbands, we are supposed to love them in a way that is way past that initial surge of romantic feelings, the, the chemistry that the society today calls love. And, and, and let's admit it, uh, the, the way that most marriages begin with those, those incredibly strong feelings. Sometimes when I'm doing, um, you know, premarital counseling, I'll have two people looking at each other and they're just like, <gasps> has there ever been anything as perfect as, as, as him? And oh, oh, yes, it's you, dear. And I'm like, can I talk to you for a moment? I, I need to... 
what? <laughs> so, you know, there, there's that, that wonderful moment where you are the two most perfect beings on the face of the earth and you've been, you know, going through this long and complicated process of false advertising, so you're actually buying it. And, um, you know, then, then gradually reality begins to set in. And that's where the whole covenantal love idea uh, begins to, to come in. But for the Christian husband, the Christian is constantly being reminded, Ghana, uh, that in this passage we are to love and respect our husband or our wife as Christ does the church, and to do so as an act of piety. It is almost a reasonable act. I mean, we could put it in Romans 12 terms. It is your reasonable act of service to love your wife. And in doing so, this is a pious way of loving Christ. Why do you love your wife? Because my wife is inherently lovable. Well, yes, of course she is. We, we all know that. But that's actually not the reason that you're given. The duty is to love your wife. The command is husbands, love your wife. Not husbands, love your wife if she is da-da-da-da-da-da-da and then a bunch of criteria. But rather... Husbands, love your wife. Our devotion to our spouse, then, should stem from a desire to glorify Christ. And that origin, the origin of our devotion, therefore, to our wife, should be our devotion to Christ. It should be part of that. Now, this is a wonderful thing, brothers and sisters, because while the initial, and I hate to say this, the initial chemical burn in a marriage eventually fades under the brutal, you know, hammering of, of just everyday life, and the fact that he chews with his mouth open and, you know, the socks were on my side of the bed. And why, why do I keep after 29, what is it, 29 years of marriage, still put my wet towel on her side of the bed, <laughs> not mine? Because I'm a jerk, uh, you know. And I, I don't love her the way that I should. But our devotion to Christ is not something that should wane that should go up or down. It is something that should be constantly growing stronger as we go on in the faith and therefore our love to our spouse. If we are both working on loving Christ and building the kingdom in our household, it should grow and it should be nurtured as we grow in him. It doesn't depend, therefore, upon the innate lovableness of our spouse. So you can still love them when they're cranky. You can still love them when the for worse part of your marriage is what you're going through, or the sickness part, and they can't remember who you are. That happens. But you can still love them in Christ. This is critical because very few marriages will consist of two consistently lovable partners. Remember this before you enter into marriage, or if you are already in the midst of a marriage, remember marriage is the lifelong union of two sinners. And there will usually be times where the husband or the wife or both of them have great difficulty even liking their spouse, much less loving them because of things that they have done, because of the way that we love. Now, Christ's love for us, the wonderful thing is, it's like God's love for the church. It is original. It comes from him. It's not a response. But human love is usually responsive. We don't say, you know, we don't, before we come into existence in time immemorial, there's this one woman who, or one man who was appointed for us and we just, we're born loving them. 
and we place our love upon them, but rather we go through life and we discover this person and we're like, hmm, they could be a good spouse. Or perhaps, as in my case, I, my wife walked into the lunchroom and I said, I'm going to marry that woman. And she still doesn't believe that I did that, but uh, I, I did actually do that. I, I said that to my friends and they were like, yeah, right. She is so out of your league. You do not even understand. Go back to D&D, you moron. Anyway. So it, it, it is the case, though, that if we love Christ, we will love our spouse, the woman that he gave to us if we're husbands, or the husband that he gave to us, or respect him. Because we are told here that the husband is to love his wife, and the wife is to do the harder thing of respecting her husband. It's what each other generally crave. What do husbands crave so very much within their household? Respect, believe it or not, more than love. What do wives want? They want that selfless love that's expressed by a man that they know they can trust. That's what each side wants and what we're called to give. So being married will inevitably involve dying to self and remembering that we've vowed to, to love and cherish our spouse, not just in the better times, but in the worst times as well. Now, this sacrifice that's being asked for here isn't easy for the Christian. It involves, as I said, dying to self. But it's almost impossible for worldlings, and the language of our marriage vows has, has changed to reflect that. So often I, I hear marriages or people will, uh, you know, they'll suggest changes and I'm like, <laughs> to be brutally honest, I'm going to say, please don't do that. There's a reason that the original marriage vows put it that way. I know that the, the language sounds archaic, but sometimes now I'll get, you know, well, I, I don't want to pledge to obey him. I, I, you know, uh, and the till death do us part, that's rather, you know, that's kind of macabre and a long way away, hopefully. So why, why must we do that? And now, I, I mean, I've been to weddings where the, the vows were, um, you know, it's basically, uh, for as long as love shall last, I pledge to love you. You know, <laughs> think about that for a moment. Uh, you know, that could be like 15 years or five minutes, you know. Uh, I, I could be, it could be you upset me at the, uh, at the reception and I don't love you anymore, and that's the end of the marriage. That is not the basis for a marriage. And there has been, obviously, a huge push in society to devalue marriage. We saw it in TV. Uh, there was a, uh, in the 1970s, it's amazing, when you look back on the, the 70s, I grew up in the 70s, uh, and there were all these things that were, ooh, they were controversial back then. Now we'd be like, that was controversial? In the 1970s, the, uh, and I apologize for the name of the show, there was a show called Rhoda, no relationship whatsoever to the wonderful woman who's in our congregation, but um, when uh, she got married, uh, they changed the wedding vow from as long as you both shall live to as long as you both shall love. And everybody was like, ooh, that's controversial. Today, that's not controversial at all. That's, uh, that is depressingly common. Until our time together is over, I've actually heard used in a, uh, in a marriage ceremony. Like I said, again, that could be 15 minutes from now. So there's no sacrifice being spoken of there, no lasting union, no uh, rather, it's just a tremendous self-centeredness. And such vows, they're an acknowledgement, really, that the marriage is probably doomed from the very beginning. That the clock is ticking uh, till the time when they finally get sick of each other and they break off the union. 
because it is rarely the case that any marriage passes through times. In fact, Jesus, you remember when he gave the example of, of building a house? He, he talked about the person who builds a house on sand, and he equated that to the person who hears what he says and then doesn't do it. He said the storm comes and the house is knocked down because it has no foundation. But the person who builds on rock is the person who hears what he says and then puts it into effect. This is the way it works in marriages. If we build on sand, the storm will come and the marriage will probably be wrecked. But it is in Christian marriage that dependence upon Christ that gets us through the rocky periods, that also helps us to build up the experience and, and the wisdom that we need for marriage and the ability to look back and, and say, yes, that was difficult, but the Lord brought us through it, and I am so glad he did. Now, I know this will be hard to believe, but there were times when I was less than lovable in my marriage. <laughs> I know. No, it's okay. Um, there were times when I was... I was awful, and not just for a, a short period of time, but for a long period of time. Uh, during the time when we were planning a church here, for instance, in Fayetteville, this was a five-year period. I have never, and I hope I never will, I have never neglected my wife so much as I did during that period. What I did was I, I and without warning to her, we went from seminary, we just had our first child, um, and you know, we're, we're in love and so on. Then we come to Fayetteville and I pivot and I begin throwing myself entirely into the church. And then the time that I am not throwing myself into building the church, I'm throwing into me time. And as a result, my wife and my kids are getting nothing. My wife loved me enough actually to say we need to go out to dinner. She sat down with me and she said, you had a great marriage when you came here. But over the past few years, you have spent all, I mean, I'm paraphrasing her. She did not say these things. She said, you've spent all your credit. You've ignored me, and, and you don't know your kids. I had made the church my bride. I had gotten the order wrong, and I had to admit to her and say I was sorry that this was, this was terribly wrong. What got us through that? What got her through that, that, that awful period of neglect and so on? It was Christ. It was dependence upon him. It was her love for him that caused her to take the man who was ignoring her and, and say, hey, you need to wake up. You need to change. There are many things that I could, I could talk about, uh, about marriage and so on. We don't have time, and I, I do want to put some stuff aside for next week. But there are, is a great application here, and it's this idea of the mystery of marriage. You remember there's this wonderful... Uh, statement, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The fact that uh, he uses this word, mysterion, uh, something that's hidden, something beyond the reach of human knowledge. Paul is literally telling us that marriage is something that helps us. It is the only thing that allows us really to understand the depth of our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that's even close. And therefore, it is something precious. It is something, it is something wonderful. It is something where our relationship is being 
used to reveal truths about our relationship to Christ. I, I, uh, there's, and there's no way I can get around talking about it without just simply reading it. Um, but uh, Kistemacher, a commentator on this, uh, this section, wrote something that uh, I read many years ago. And it changed my entire view of that, uh, that section 32. This is a great mystery. This is what he writes. He says, Paul has now, has just now spoken about the marriage ordinance in accordance with which two people become so intimately united that in a sense they become one. This mystery is great, he says. He must therefore be referring to marriage. However, he makes very clear that he's not thinking of marriage in and by itself. He definitely mentions once more the link between it and the Christ church relationship. Accordingly, I can find no better answer to the question, what is meant here by mystery, that is, by the secret that would have remained hidden had it not been revealed, than the one given by Robertson in his word pictures. Clearly, Paul means to say that the comparison of marriage to the union of Christ and the church is the mystery. The union of Christ with the church, so that from the sweep of eternal delight in the presence of his father, God's only begotten son plunged himself into the dreadful darkness and awful anguish of Calvary in order to save his rebellious people, gathered from among all the nations, and even to dwell in their hearts through his spirit, and at last to present them, even these utterly undeserving ones to himself, as his own bride, with whom he becomes united in such intimate fellowship that no earthly metaphor can ever do justice to it. This, even in and by itself, is a mystery. But the fact that this marvelous love, this blissful Christ-church relationship, is actually reflected here on earth in the union of a husband and his wife, so that by the strength of the former bond, Christ-church and the latter husband-wife is now able to function most gloriously, bringing supreme happiness to the marriage partners, blessing to mankind, and glory to God. Indeed, is the mystery supreme. This idea of marriage should never be lost sight of by those who have been united in Christian matrimony. Every day the husband should ask himself, does my love for my wife reveal the marks of Christ's love for his church? Now there's so much in there to meditate upon and to think about the relationship between marriage and the believer's union and the way that how Christ treats the church should be the way that husbands are treating their wives and so on. A, a lifetime could be spent meditating upon it and indeed should be. But if we understand how important this mystery of marriage is, we'll also understand how it is that it's the only thing that comes close to being able to analogize the relationship between, uh, between Christ and the church. And therefore, that is why the world, the flesh, and the devil are so dead set on destroying marriage. Because it does give us this beautiful insight into the believer's relationship with Christ. And it does also explain how the church has gradually tilted from understanding that covenantal union. And indeed, the idea of all of the covenantal promises and the idea of the family as part of the church to an incredibly individualistic, consumer-driven, I choose this, and then I drop it, I go here, I drop it, I go there, that kind of relationship within the church. And the way that we have become so very shallow in our relationships, not just to Jesus, but to one another as well within the church. All of that is accomplished by simply knocking marriage out. So brothers and sisters, it should be something that as zealous as the devil is to destroy it, we are to defend it, to 
keep it in its high and holy position. We learned this morning about the importance of the Sabbath in teaching us about what is to come. And did you notice that in both of the creation ordinances, the Sabbath, God gives us a model for understanding what the age to come, heaven, will be like. And in marriage, he gives us a model for what understanding the wedding supper of the Lamb will be like when everything, when it's, when it's fully consummated and we're in his presence. Therefore, to lose the Sabbath and to lose marriage is to learn the two elementary training tools for young Christians to understand what it's all going to be like, knocking them out. And therefore, we know why the world and the flesh and the devil, as I said, want these things gone from our lives. Don't let that happen. Fight for marriage, not just your own marriage, but fight for marriage as a principle. And understand the blessing of family and children. They are the future church, the future church visible going forward, and hopefully the members of the invisible church. So let's go before the Lord. God, our gracious Father, we thank you that you've given us this beautiful picture of the believer's relationship to Christ in marriage. I pray, Lord, that we would, we would learn to cherish it and that, Lord, no matter how bad we are at it, that we would continue to devote ourselves to you and to love you and therefore to be forgiving, to learn how to be married, Lord, to learn how two sinners yoked together in marriage and bonded to Christ can learn uh, to live, to love, to build a family, and, oh, Lord, to train up a new generation. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of marriage. Thank you also for the gift of the Sabbath. Help us to treasure these two creation ordinances. May they never be done away.